So last week, we learned that God made the Jews and the Gentiles one holy church. That Jesus abolished the ceremonial law, that all believers are saved through the gospel, and that the love of God can be measured by the cross. Well, in chapter one or chapter four in verses one through 16, Paul is now encouraging believers to promote unity in the church. And in verse one, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. See, Paul's saying that God has given you all this grace. And now we are to respond by living for him. In other words, in response to all God's done, we live the kind of life that proves he's called us. I mean, think of all the blessings that we've learned in the first three chapters. We've learned that God has saved us by grace, that we were chosen, that we were part of his church. And so it's not that we're living to earn God's favor, but we're living a worthy life out of gratitude for what he's done. So notice that Paul, he says, again, as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. You know, Paul is certainly living a life worthy of the calling, but it's costing him, right? He's lost his freedom. He's sitting in prison. He's surrendered all his personal rights, but he's also devoted to doing the work God called him to do. So you get this picture of a man who's just enslaved. He's lost all his rights, and he's tirelessly working on the church's behalf. And this brings me to a, to a principle. Living a life worthy of the calling costs and requires work. See, grace is free, but following Jesus costs everything. Luke chapter 14 and verse 26, 27 says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Isn't that strong language? See, there's no place in Christianity for what I call passive spectators. These are people who say, well, I believe in the Bible, I just don't live it. If I asked you to raise your hand, you could probably tell me, you've heard people say the same thing. Well, if you really believe the Bible, you're going to live it. You're going to trust and obey it. See, Jesus commanded us to take up our cross and follow him. This means do his will, finish the work he's given us. And the work includes living a godly life that honors him. Well, then in verses two through six, Paul tells us to practice four virtues that keep unity in the church. He says, practice all humility, gentleness, patience, and bear with one another. And make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
Basically, what he's saying is, is that you control your own behavior. So work hard to behave in ways that secure a bond of peace. Well, how do we do that? Well, Paul said all humility. You know, and I believe the reason why he said all humility, because he was encompassing all those virtues into one. Humility really does that. But humility is the key to securing that bond of peace. I mean, think about it. Humble people have a modest view of themselves. They're not superior. They're not inferior. They don't compare themselves with others. They don't compete with others. They practice putting others first. They serve and consider others more important. They have a gentle, quiet spirit about them. They're not glory-seeking. In fact, they speak very little about themselves. They're courteous. They're submissive. They're not easily irritated or angered. They endure unfair treatment. They apologize when necessary. And they're quick to forgive and not hold grudges. They overlook offenses and they don't dwell on other people's faults. They don't criticize, but they're quick to encourage reconciliation. I mean, can you imagine for a minute? Just imagine this. How connected the body of Christ would be if we all practiced humility? Well, humility certainly is the glue that secures the bond of peace. And Paul says again, we're to make every effort. It takes work. It takes work in the church to keep peace. We're to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And did you notice that he said unity of the Spirit? That's because the Holy Spirit creates it. The Bible calls it a special word. It calls it koinonia. It's koinonia fellowship. It binds all peoples from different races, nationalities, languages, economic classes into one community through their faith in Jesus. And it's a supernatural, intimate, spiritual fellowship only found in the body of Christ. You know, several years ago, it was crazy. I went to, I mean, this was many years ago, probably at least 20. I went to Washington, D.C. for a Promise Keepers that was held in the mall. There was 1.5 million believers there in the mall. It was packed. I mean, you couldn't even walk like two feet without rubbing shoulders with somebody. But you know, it was the most peaceful gathering I'd ever seen. It, there, there was so much rich koinonia in that place. You'd, you'd come up and you'd talk to somebody that you had never met from maybe another part of the world. And you would have this immediate connection with them simply because that Holy Spirit inside of them was quickening the Holy Spirit inside of you. This is the beauty of the Koinonia Fellowship. It's found in no other, no other group but the body of Christ. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit. See, and Paul says, our job is to recognize it, preserve it. And we do that by practicing humility. I mean, think of Jesus. Think, think how he lived his life. Philippians 2, 3 through 9 says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ, 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So I want to ask you this morning, what steps are you taking to preserve the unity of the Spirit here at the Well Worship Center? We need you. You know, Satan's always trying to stir up trouble. But it's those peacemakers, it's those humble people that are seeking to preserve that bond of peace that keeps the body united. Be a peacemaker. Well, in verses 7 through 13, Paul tells us that God chose some believers to lead and build up the church. And he quotes Psalm 68, 18. He says, when he, meaning Jesus, ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. His point is that God himself came down to earth and gave gifts to people. And these gifts were positions of leadership. He goes on to say, pastors, teachers, evangelists. He gave them his, he gave them their authority to build up the body of Christ, to teach his word. And the goal is, is that we would all reach unity in the faith, unity in the knowledge of the Son of God, and maturity in the fullness of Christ. So why is maturity important anyway? Well, in Paul's time, there were many false teachers that had infiltrated the church. And they were teaching things that, that were not according to Scripture. Look at verse 9 and 10. It's in parentheses, right? It says, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So when I was reading that this week, I thought, wow. Why did Paul think that he needed to explain that? It's pretty self-explanatory. Why, why did he need to have that little explanation in parentheses? Well, I found out. He was refuting false teachers. There was this heretical belief called Gnosticism. It had infiltrated the church. The Gnostics believed that the spirit was good, but that all matter was evil. That a lesser god, a demigod, created everything, and he did a terrible job. He made the whole world evil. That, that the true God could never have anything to do with his creation because he was pure and separate apart from all matter. Basically, these teachers taught that it was impossible for the true God to become a human because matter is evil. And Paul said that's wrong. According to the scriptures, the same one who ascended and filled the whole universe with his presence is the same one who descended and came down as a human. See, this is why we need maturity. False teachers lead people astray with things that kind of sound right, but they're not. And when teachers lead, false teachers lead people astray like that, well, guess what? 
the unity is disrupted. And Paul's saying, come to the fullness of the measure of Christ, understanding the scriptures, become mature in the faith so you can recognize this garbage. We need to know what we believe and be able to stand on it. That's why in verse 14 he said, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. And there's a principle here. God desires all believers to become mature in their faith. I, uh, I, ha- I, I cannot thank Joplin enough for how much I've grown in his, under his ministry. He's a mature believer. Mature believers uh, cultivate other believers to become mature. And I so appreciate, so appreciate his ministry. Others, I call them the three J's, the three gyms. I sat under their teaching for 10 years, and they taught me how to do homiletics. Homiletics is how to take the Bible apart piece by piece. And under their teaching, I'd learned how to study the Bible. And they helped me to grow up. And I'm not mature yet. I'm getting there. But, the t- but, but it's good to be under the leadership of people who are so that they can lift us up and build us up. So my question is, are you growing in your faith? And if so, in what ways have you noticed you've grown during the past year? Well, in chapter 4, verse 17 through 32, Paul tells us to put off the old self and to put on the new self. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. You see, he continues to build on this idea that we're to live a life worthy of the calling. The believers should be holy and set apart, but not because of external regulations like the ceremonial law, but, but, but because of our behavior, our attitude. Church, your behavior and your attitude should look different than the world's. And if it doesn't look different, we're doing something wrong. The world should see Jesus Christ in us in that light. He says the Gentiles' lifestyle is contrary to the righteous, holy life God desires a believer to live. And I mean, think about it. Their consciences are calloused. Their minds are full of darkness. They have no shame. They're living for sexual pleasures. They have this continual craving for perversion and impure, filthy, things along those lines. And Paul says that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Christ Jesus. Here's another reference to Gnosticism. You know, the the people in the church were teaching 
that you could sin all you wanted and there was absolutely no consequence. See, the Gnostics believed that there were two ways that a person would, could achieve true purity. The first way was to overcome sin by indulging in it. Isn't that an interesting concept? Clement of Alexandria wrote this, it's no great thing to restrain lust, but it is surely a great thing not to be conquered lust when one indulges in it. Isn't that a twisted thought? People were teaching this in the church. The second way they believed is if they just beat and harmed and mistreated their physical body enough that they would achieve spiritual purity. Remember, they thought their body, their physical body, was evil. Satan loves to twist God's truth. You see how easily these ideas could influence immature believers in the church? You know, they sound kind of, they actually kind of sound good, but they're not. And that's how, that's how false teachings kind of work their way in. And this is what Paul was dealing with here. He says this is wrong. Sin is not rooted in your physical flesh. Sin is rooted in the old nature. It says you were taught with regard to your former way of life. Put off your old self, which is being corrupted with with its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This doesn't have anything to do with your physical flesh. The idea is like putting on different clothes, though. He's saying this is what you need to do. Take off that old nature with its old habits, with its old words, with its old thoughts. Take it off like you would take your clothes off and then put on the new nature. The nature that's made in Jesus Christ's image. Put that on and live according to that. Think of a prisoner for a minute. <clears throat> a prisoner who's been in prison for a while. They're, they're counting day, down their days, right? They're they're counting down the cheeseburgers until they get to that day. Well, the day that they're released, they're not going to go back out in a society wearing their prison clothes. That's the last thing they're going to do. They're going to take those old prison clothes off, and they're going to throw them away, and they're going to put on new clothes, clothes that look like ours, because they've got a new life. And that's what Paul is saying put on this new life of Jesus Christ and go out and live it out. Basically, Paul's saying make a clean break with your past. But you know what I was saying about this this week? You know, unfortunately, most people don't make a clean break with their past. Or I shouldn't say most, but some don't. You know, it's like they get this Jesus button and they wear it on an old T-shirt. And it's just an add-on to their life. Their clothes are the same. But hey, they got the Jesus button. 
which means that, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay with God. It's, they, never, they don't change. And basically, it's cheap grace. It's not real grace. True grace empowers us to change, to put off, which means to deny that old self and become who Jesus wants us to be. Now, Paul tells us what behaviors to put off and what to put on. He says, put off lying, but put on truth. Put off stealing and laziness. Put on hard work and sharing with others. Put off unwholesome talk. Put on encouraging others. Put off bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander. Ill will. Put on kindness and compassion. These are the things that we're supposed to be dressed in. And this brings me to my next principle. Mature believers practice putting off the old self. You know, with the Holy Spirit's help, we can deny our sin nature. We don't have to be prisoners to those things that we used to be prisoners to. With God's help, we can throw those clothes off, make a clean break with those old habits. So in what ways are you still wearing your old clothes? What behaviors would you like to wear more frequently? I don't know how others do it, but the way I personally do it is I start every morning in the scriptures. I get up and let the, let the word of God transform my thinking. You know, if you own the morning, you'll own the day. Did you know that? You get up early, and you make God a priority, and you start with his word and prayer, you're going to have a lot better day, I promise you. It doesn't guarantee that that old nature won't come back. I'll be at school and the most horrific thought, the most wicked, horrible thought out of nowhere pops into my mind. Well, I have the choice. I can dwell on it. Or I can throw it out. And that's what I do most of the time. Most of the time I say in Jesus' name, I rebuke that thought. You don't have to let every thought pop into your mind and stay there. You, God has given you the ability to police your mind. And mature believers do that. Mature believers take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And if that's not a thought that, if that's not a thought that conforms to his word, throw that thing out. It doesn't belong there. And I'm not just talking about sinful thoughts either. What about these thoughts? Satan shoots a thought into your mind and it's so wicked and so horrible, you're not thinking about the thought, but all of a sudden you're thinking about what a, what a wicked person you are. How could I think like that? Where did that come from? I must not be a mature Christian. I must be terrible. Am I even saved at all? You know, I'm talking about real stuff this morning. Don't dwell on that either. Remember Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. God has saved you, called you, 
You are his. He sealed you. It's done. Well, then in verses, uh, <clears throat> in chapter 5, <clears throat> excuse me, verses 1 through 21, Paul tells the believers to live as children of light. He says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Now remember, you're a child of God. And not just any child, you're a dearly loved child. But this is another sign of maturity, right? Mature believers imitate God. Children naturally copy their parents. I mean, they, they're always watching. They're always listening. And if you're a parent, you know that you don't want them always watching. You don't want them always listening because they end up picking up our bad behaviors too. But Paul says, make Jesus your example. Make him your model. Copy what he does. Imitate what he does. Keep your eyes fixed on the word of God. Let your heart be attuned to listen to his spirit. And then just copy him. Like any child would copy their father or their mother. See, Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate example that we should copy. 1 Peter 1 1 of 15 through 16 says, be holy. Because he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all that you do. Be holy, for I am holy. We should be copying holiness, the holiness of Christ in our behavior, in our thoughts, in our words. And Paul says, live a life so full of love that you're a fragrant offering to God. Like Jesus. Give yourself in service to others. You know, I thought about this, a life, fragr- a, a, a life that's so full of love that it's a fragrant offering to God. You know, you're probably like me. When you're walking in the neighborhood and you smell somebody cooking a, sna- a steak, a steak, Oh, you don't want that. Somebody cooking a steak on the grill, it gets your attention, right? And you're like, oh man, that smells good. Sometimes you can smell it even a block away. Well, that's how we should, that's how our lives should smell to God. Like a good cooked steak on the grill. That's it. We're just this fragrant offering because our lives copy the life of Jesus. Then in 3 and 4, Paul says that a believer should not even have a hint or a trace of sexual immorality. And he lists several other sins, but he just he groups them all with sexual immorality. So what is sexual immorality? Well, it's fornication, adultery, pornography, homosexuality, sexual abuse. I mean, you could go on and on. But it's this idea here of sensuality, this constant lust for more sexual pleasures. And he says this is improper for God's holy people. And then in verse 5 through 7, he gives a very strong warning. It caused me to think hard. <clears throat> he says, therefore, Excuse me. 
He says, this you can be sure. No immortal, no immoral or impure or greedy person, such man as idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. See, remember, these Gnostic teachers were teaching that you can sin all you want, that there was no consequences. But Paul says, there is consequences. He's saying, don't excuse or minimize the practice of these sins. See, people who deliberately live in sin will not go to heaven. I want to say that again because I think the church, we, we need to hear it. People who deliberately live in sin will not go to heaven. They're sons of disobedience, and God's wrath comes on them. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 says a similar thing. It says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards or revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to try, I've got to wrap this up fast, and I'm going to try to explain this the best I can. First of all, Paul's not saying that believers who have fallen into these temptations are going to hell. He's not saying that. He's not saying that every man who's ever had a lustful thought and committed adultery with somebody in their heart is a son of disobedience. That's not his point. The truth is, is that believers battle all kinds of temptation every single day. Not only from our nature, but Satan. We battle things like adultery, lust, perversion, homosexuality, pornography. Our culture is full of it. It promotes it. And from time to time, believers will fall. But here's the difference. The believer who falls into this temptation hates it. They can't live in it. That new nature inside of them fights against it. Makes it so uncomfortable. So when you fall, remember the truths in chapter 1 through 3 that grace covers you. You've been redeemed. Your debt is paid in full. And this same grace that has saved you will empower you to overcome that sin. Now, however, I want you to understand something, though, too. Do you know Gnosticism is still alive and well in the church? Not our church, but in the church as a whole. It's just repackaged. It's taught under the banner of God's love. I've heard it in songs on Christian, in, on Christian radio. I've read it in articles. Heard it preached. Again, not in this church. But I've heard it preached. In fact, I was just reading an article the other day where this man, I mean, obviously he had a lot of followers and he was a super spiritual guy. This man said, you know what? God's grace is so inexhaustible. His love is so deep. Go ahead and sin all you want. 
And he said, now don't get me wrong, sin hurts you. But God's love is so deep, you can't out-sin God. Now doesn't that sound kind of right, but kind of not right? Then he went on to say, well, let me give you an example. My, if my daughter said, Daddy, I want to go stick my hand in a blender, you know, I would say to her, well, that's going to hurt you really bad, honey, but if you want to go ahead and do that, go ahead and do that. Daddy will still love you. And I thought, what? How did God's grace become so twisted that somebody would even write something like that? Paul says, no, that's absolutely not how it is. That's cheap grace. Cheap grace. See, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution, ab, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Cheap grace is fake grace. It doesn't change anybody. It doesn't transform anybody's life. You know, God, it says God loves everyone, therefore all are saved. All you have to do is just say some words, mentally accept it. You don't have to put off your old self. Just keep living the way you live. Sin all you want. Grace is inexhaustible. But like the Jesus button on your shirt, it gives a false sense of righteousness. I'm okay with God. Nothing wrong with my life. The sad thing is, is that millions, and I might even be too conservative on that, I don't know. Millions of professing believers have been deceived by cheap grace. Their lifestyles haven't changed. They're still practicing sin. Their confidence is in their Jesus button. But their tears among the wheat. Would you, would, would you guys mind putting that up there? I want you to take a look at this picture. Can you tell the difference? Which is wheat and which is just a weed? You'd have to have a really, a really trained eye to do it. I can't. See, we can't judge people. We can't say, well, you're, you're saved and you're not saved. We don't know. But we can warn people using the Word of God. My friend, he's a pastor in Iowa. And his worship leader, living with his girlfriend, fornicating. Everybody in church knew it. Well, my pastor came to him and showed him this verse. Or my friend came to him and showed him this verse. So listen, you, you got to change. You can't, you can't do this. You're up in front of people. You're, you've, even, you've even got a higher level of responsibility on you. Well, he got angry with my friend 
And then many people in the church got angry with my friend for telling him the truth. What a sad time we're living in. When people are so deceived, you know, they think they got grace, but it's not real grace. Paul says in verse 8 through 20, you were once darkness. Now you're children of light. Live as a child of light. It's true grace changes your conduct from darkness to light. He says, live like this. Practice goodness and righteousness and truth. Find out what pleases Jesus, what his will is. Live a life so different that like a spotlight, it reveals the true nature of sin in others. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Encourage other believers with Bible verses and songs, hymns. Sing praise songs in your heart. I mean, this is the life of a child of the light. These are the behaviors of a child of the light. This is my last principle. Real grace empowers the believer to live a transformed, holy life. So what kind of grace is at work in your life this morning? Is it true grace or is it cheap grace? Is it grace that's transformed you and empowers you to live as a child of the light? Or is it just convenient?